Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, January 12th. In today's news, new details emerge about President Trump's refusal to act when the mob stormed the Capitol. Joe Biden scrambles to prevent a second Trump impeachment from hampering his first 100 days. And two House Democrats who tested positive for COVID blame their Republican colleagues for refusing to wear masks when they were hiding out together in a safe room. But first, the big idea. Several Capitol Police officers have been suspended and more than a dozen remain under active investigation. Eight separate inquiries have been launched into the actions of Capitol officers last Wednesday. In one of the cases, officers had posted what Capitol Police investigators found to be messages showing support for the rally preceding the attack on the complex, including one post touting Trump's baseless contention that the election had been stolen. Investigators in another instance have found a Capitol officer posted inappropriate images of Joe Biden on its social media account. Yesterday, Congressman Tim Ryan, the Ohio Democrat who chairs the committee that controls the Capitol Police budget, told reporters that one of those suspended officers was captured in images of the riot that went viral online. That photo appears to show the officer posing for a selfie with a member of the insurrection. The other officer suspended was seen outside of the Capitol wearing a red MAGA hat. Last night, Chad Wolf resigned as the acting Secretary of Homeland Security. Wolf, who was overseas in the Mideast last week during the siege, attributed his decision to, quote, recent events, not to mention court rulings that have challenged the legality of his appointment by Trump to run the department. Wolf said he was saddened to take this step. Several lawmakers have called for hearings to probe why Wolf and DHS failed to anticipate the threats posed by Trump's followers on January 6th. In one of his final moves as acting secretary, Wolf announced that the Secret Service will take control over all security preparations related to the inauguration on Wednesday, tomorrow, six days ahead of schedule. Meanwhile, the Pentagon announced that up to 15,000 National Guard troops will be deployed in D.C. for the inaugural. The military is putting more boots on the ground after lawmakers questioned the brass's ability to respond effectively to domestic crises and urged a crackdown on growing evidence of right-wing extremism in the uniformed ranks. This appears to be the most troops deployed in the nation's capital since the 1968 riots burned down much of the city following Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. A contingent of 340 D.C. National Guard members had been activated ahead of last Wednesday, but the guardsmen were unarmed and mostly on traffic duty in other parts of the city in a limited mission. After the debacle, 6,000 troops are deployed on Capitol Hill this morning. Up to 10,000 troops are expected to be called up by Saturday. This time, the members of the National Guard will be heavily armed, based on the advice of the FBI. The FBI warned in a private memo to law enforcement agencies yesterday, which we obtained, that armed far-right extremist groups are planning to march on all 50 state capitals this weekend. Now, the memo is something of a raw intelligence product, compiling information gathered by the Bureau and several other government agencies. Some of it is unverified, and the threat is likely to differ significantly from place to place, though the memo says there are plans to target all 50 state capitals. But the data points it highlights for law enforcement are nonetheless troubling. So troubling, in fact, that last night, Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers 
activated his National Guard to defend the Capitol in Madison. In Arizona, Governor Doug Ducey erected a double-layer chain-link fence around the Capitol in Phoenix. And in Washington State, Governor Jay Inslee called up 750 of his National Guard troops to protect the Capitol in Olympia. It gets worse, though. In another conference call, private, last night for House members, we talked to a couple members who were on the call, Capitol Police briefed them on intelligence that they said shows three potential plots surrounding the inauguration. The first is a demonstration billed as the largest armed protest ever to take place on American soil. That's what organizers are calling it. Another is a protest to honor the memory of Ashley Babbitt, the woman killed while climbing into the Speaker's lobby during last week's siege. And another demonstration, which three House members who were on the call told HuffPost was the one that concerned them the most, would involve insurrectionists forming a perimeter around the Capitol, the White House, and the Supreme Court, and then blocking Democrats from entering, perhaps even killing them, so that Trump loyalists could seize control of the legislative branch. The Capitol Police have established a new, wider perimeter with fencing and razor wire, and authorities assured all the members that they are prepared for a range of terrorist plots and that they should not worry. But there was palpable alarm from several members on the call. The head of the Federal Aviation Administration issued a separate strong warning last night to pro-Trump forces considering flying into the Capitol for the inauguration. He said any safety risk aboard an airliner could mean a jail term and a $35,000 fine. Several viral videos show people like Republican Senators Mitt Romney and Lindsey Graham being heckled and surrounded at airports over the last week. Other videos show rowdy Trump supporters behaving crazily aboard airliners and refusing to wear masks. The biggest flight attendants union says that every single airline flying out of the three Washington region airports over the last week has reported experiencing scary incidents. Last night, the mayor of D.C., Muriel Bowser, along with the Republican governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, and the Democratic governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, held a joint call for reporters to discourage all Americans from coming to D.C. for the inauguration in the interest of public safety. Bowser says she is banning all indoor dining and forcing all museums to stay closed until two days after the inauguration. She said this fiat is intended to curb the spread of the coronavirus, but also to make Washington as inhospitable as possible to any visitors. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, hiding from the rioters in a safe room in the Capitol last Wednesday, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, a California Republican, called Jared Kushner's cell, asking Trump's son-in-law to do something. Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina phoned Ivanka Trump, the president's daughter. Kellyanne Conway, a longtime Trump confidant and former White House senior advisor, called an aide who she knew was standing at the president's side. But as senators and House members trapped in the Capitol begged for immediate help during the siege, they struggled to get through to the president, who safely ensconced in the West Wing, was too busy watching fiery TV images of the crisis unfolding around them to act or to even bother to hear their pleas. Trump ultimately, begrudgingly, urged his supporters to go home in peace. But the six hours between when the Capitol was breached shortly before 2 p.m. and when it was finally declared secure at 8 p.m. revealed a president paralyzed. Ashley Parker, Josh Dossie, and Phil Rucker report that McCarthy eventually got on the phone with Trump, 
but the Republican congressman told close allies afterward that he found the president distracted and not paying attention to what he was saying because he appeared to be watching TV instead. So an advisor to McCarthy told us that the minority leader called into Fox News to describe the mayhem in an effort to get through to the president so that he would understand how dire the situation was. Around 4 p.m., the White House was prepared to finally put out a video address on behalf of the president. Trump aides did three takes of the video and chose the most palatable option in which the president continued to falsely claim the election was stolen from him. And despite consternation from advisors, the president also referred to the violent protesters as, quote, very special people. The following evening on Thursday, Trump released another video, which is the closest advisors say he will likely ever come to a concession speech. His calls for healing and reconciliation and his promise of a peaceful transfer of power were what many aides considered a day too late. Yet as Trump watched the media coverage of his video, he grew incensed and screamed. The president said he wished he had not recorded that video because he feared that calming words would make him look, in his words, weak. Last night, New England Patriots coach Bill Belichick, who was a key Trump supporter in 2016, announced that he will no longer come to D.C. on Thursday to accept the Presidential Medal of Freedom Award. He said he had agreed to accept the award before Trump incited last week's violence. Number two, the House is barreling toward impeaching Trump by the end of the week. Uh, An article of impeachment was formally introduced yesterday. President-elect Joe Biden, scrambling to ensure the effort does not bog down the start of his tenure, called up the Senate parliamentarian yesterday afternoon to quiz him on whether he could simultaneously have a trial of Trump while also passing urgently needed bills for COVID relief and confirming Biden's nominees for vital national security positions. Biden told reporters in Delaware as he got the second shot of the coronavirus vaccine that he thinks they can pass bills in the morning and then have the Trump trial in the afternoon. But several officials who have been involved in past impeachment proceedings tell us it would be quite difficult, if not impossible, to bifurcate the Senate's work as Biden wants. There could also be further delays if legal challenges are mounted to determine whether a former president can even face impeachment. And Senate Republicans have little incentive to work with Biden to speed things along, which would let him enact more of his agenda. All these factors are putting enormous pressure on Chuck Schumer, the incoming majority leader, to decide how to negotiate the political cross-currents. He said in an interview yesterday with the Buffalo News that he considers impeaching Trump and executing Biden's agenda to be equally important. Number three, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, the Democrat from the Seattle area, prepared for the worst after she was forced to take shelter last week for several hours in a crowded committee room of 100 people. Many of the GOP members of Congress who were hiding out with her were not wearing masks, and worse, they refused to accept them from a colleague. After Congress voted to affirm Biden's victory, Jayapal began to quarantine as a precaution. Sure enough, last night she announced that she had just tested positive joining Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman, a 75-year-old Democrat from New Jersey who's a cancer survivor and was also in the same room with Jayapal. Jayapal and Coleman both blamed Republicans for, quote, creating a super spreader event on top of a domestic terrorist attack. Her statement pointed to a video, which was published online, which showed several maskless House Republicans in the room with them, including Andy Biggs from Arizona, Michael Cloud from Texas, Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia, 
Mark Wayne Mullen from Oklahoma and Scott Perry from Pennsylvania, who refused to put on surgical masks that were offered to them by Congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester, the Democrat who represents the Delaware district where Biden actually lives. The two Congresswomen were among nearly 198,000 Americans who tested positive for the coronavirus on Monday. Sadly, the seven-day running average for daily deaths in America from COVID has topped 3,200. Nearly 375,000 people have now died from the contagion. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, January 12th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Homan. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.